If you love all things gardening, why not join us at our Spring Fair from the 3rd to the 5th of May at Bewley in Hampshire. You'll find everything you need to kickstart the season. Find out more at bbcgardenersworldfair.com. See you there. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is not the sound of a stream running through the mountains. It's water from a leaking pipe trickling down a stairway. That's not a frog splashing into a lake. It's a piece of sheetrock falling into a puddle on a kitchen floor. And that's not a hiker taking a deep breath of mountain air. It's a homeowner gasping at the sight of a $12,000 water damage repair bill. 40% of homeowners have experienced water damage. Protect your home with the Moen Smart Water Monitor and Shutoff. Moen. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hello, welcome to Growing Greener. I'm Ara Anderson, and this is my podcast series for Gardener's World magazine, where I'm inviting experts to share their knowledge about how we can all become sustainable gardeners. Through a blend of science-based facts, research, experience, and above all passion, you'll discover how your actions in the garden will make a real difference to the planet. healthy garden starts with healthy soil. So I'm exploring how we can create the best conditions. I'm talking to Professor Duncan Cameron, a world expert in plant and soil biology, who lifts the lid on the mysterious world under our feet. Hi, Duncan. Welcome to Growing Greener. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Well, I'm really glad you're here. And I think it's fair to say that you're not just interested in soil, but you're obsessed with it. And that's really fantastic because I'm hoping we're going to discover a lot more of its hidden secrets um, with you today. So I'm going to dive straight in. You say, and I'm going to quote this, we owe our existence to a six inch layer of topsoil and the fact that it rains. Now, tell us a bit more about that, that statement and what is going on with this unseen world under our feet. So I actually, I pinched that from uh, the Minnesota Farm Growers Association, I think it was, and it was sent to me um, on Twitter, and I saw it and thought, wow, that, that really does capture um, why why we can exist at all, because almost 
all of the food that we eat, pretty much everything, originally comes from our, our soil. We eat food that might be grown hydroponically, but, but that's about it. And so the soil really is the foundation of all life on Earth and absolutely of human civilizations. So we know if civilizations don't look after their soil, that civilizations can collapse because they mistreat their soil. So that's, I think that's quite a, a big war warning to us that something is, I don't know, something that we call dirt, that, that we, we don't really value, is actually the reason that we exist. Yeah, and I think that's a really important thing, isn't it, is to really get ourselves focused at, dare I say, ground level and realise just how precious soil is. It's not just um, a bit of dirt. So, I mean, I think it would be really good to explore and understand what what makes up soil? Because what why is it that people call it dirt, and why it isn't dirt? You know, what is it about it, Duncan? So, soil has got some um, key components. So, soil has a lot of air in it. People are quite surprised that there's a huge amount of air in our soil. But our soil is essentially made of three key ingredients: it's water. Uh, organic material and minerals so things like clays or sands um, things like that and in a healthy soil we've got lots of organic carbon so carbon that's come from decaying plant material decaying microbes things like the exudations um, the slime from an earthworm stomach for example all of these things bind together uh, the the um, the mineral components of soil and they create what we call an aggregate so the soil aggregates are bits of organic matter uh, and bits of mineral matter glued together um, and then these little aggregates bind together to make bigger aggregates and these bigger aggregates are what makes our soil really healthy we have that lovely crumb structure you when you get down and smell the soil it smells healthy and as a soil scientist we get there and I don't recommend this but you you can you can have a chew of the soil you can work out how gritty it is how much clay is in there uh, and it's just a really wonderful um, environment for, for life. But when we look at a, a soil that's been what we call degraded, so not looked after, it's lost a lot of its properties that are, allow it um, to function as a, a healthy ecosystem. That organic component of the soil is, uh, is often removed. Um, that can happen in lots of different ways. But one of the most common ways is through overworking the land, so ploughing and uh, disturbing the soil. Um, once you've lost that organic matter, then you've lost a healthy soil, really. I mean, that is very interesting. You know, obviously, as gardeners, we're not often ploughing as such, but we certainly have got these uh, different ideas about to kind of to dig or not to dig. And and it sounds to me as if, you know, potentially turning over our soil, which we always used to think was very good for our backs and our rating and getting the worms up and running, but you're kind of saying that maybe that, that could actually be degrading our soils. Uh yeah, it, it kind of depends on, on how deep you go, how often you turn over the soil. I mean, 
if soils start to become compacted, then they they lose that aeration, uh, and that means that they set like concrete. You know, I, I grew up in a house with a clay soil, and despite my mum and dad's best efforts, it would set like concrete in the summer, and you get those familiar cracks all over the, the growing beds. Um, so they they didn't really have a choice. They had to turn over the, the, the soil to, to give it that aeration so we could actually grow stuff. But... Um, if you do that regularly or, or where the soil isn't compacted, you're exposing the uh, the carbon that's stored within our soils to the oxygen. And it's a simple bit of chemistry that turns carbon and oxygen into carbon dioxide. Uh, and then the, the organic matter that's gluing the soil together literally just kind of drifts up into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. So it's, it's a fine balance. And when we kind of think about movements that have have started to arise that that really try and take a soil centric view of, for example, food production, so the the conservation agriculture, regenerative agriculture movement, um, the regenerative agriculture movement's tagline is really that we work the soil as little as we can possibly work it. Because if if the soil's in a healthy state, if it's got lots of carbon in it, um, it shouldn't really need turning over. Um, obviously, we use it as a tool to to try and get rid of weeds and things. But we can also expose weeds, um, the, the seeds of weeds, um, and, and they can germinate. We can make the problem worse. So we've got to be really careful that we don't overwork the land. And if it's possible to leave your soil alone, then leave it alone. Yeah, no, that that kind of makes sense because, of course, we talk a lot about putting down mulches onto the soil, you know, to kind of allow the extra organic matter to break down. But I just want to touch a little bit more on carbon because I think sometimes it can be confusing understanding about climate change and carbon in the atmosphere, carbon being kept in the soil. Just why why is it so important that carbon remains in the ground? So there is, there's actually, um, we think about five times more carbon in our soil than there is in the atmosphere. Um, so if all of that carbon became carbon dioxide, um, we would look at our planet rapidly turning into a planet like Venus with runaway climate change or runaway global warming. Um, so keeping the carbon in the soil is really important, but keeping the carbon in the right place in the soil is really important. So uh, we can have lots of, we put on mulches and that's a really good thing to do. That, uh, that carbon becomes dissolved and enters the water that percolates through the soil. But that carbon is quite transient it's not going to stay there for very long what we need is carbon to be locked into these aggregates because once it's locked into these aggregates it's it's protected from the action of microbes and and of plants and essentially if you've got uh, lots of macro aggregates so you know getting up towards half a centimeter those the the carbon in the middle of those aggregates is essentially stored over geological timescales if you don't disturb it it's not going to go anywhere um so yeah it's it's i think it's really important that we think about um our soils as potential carbon sinks because if we manage them properly they can be part of a tool for reducing the amount of co2 in our atmosphere and a really powerful tool against global warming oh that's great because obviously as gardeners you know 
the soil is so key to what we do. And, I, and, and, and it's that locking in of the carbon. What as gardeners can we do to ensure that we're keeping it locked in? Apart from, like you say, not, not turning over so much, what is the mechanism to lock that carbon in? So it's really encouraging biodiversity. So you want as many um, um, worms as possible. You want bacteria that will thrive from them, but also using uh, and encouraging uh, other microbes in the soil, particularly mycorrhizal fungi. Um, so I've, I know you've covered mycorrhizas a few times, but I, I maybe should explain what they are. Um, uh, so they are this truly ancient symbiosis between plants and fungi, fungi in the soil. Um, and essentially what happens is the plant uh, is able to exchange the sugar that it makes through photosynthesis um, with the, the fungus and the fungus goes out into the soil, it uses that energy and it can mine the soil for mineral nutrients which it gives back to the plant. So it's a, a huge extension of the plant's root network. But it's also incredibly efficient because the the fungal threads, the hyphae, as we call them, are really fine. Um, They can permeate bits of the soil that plant roots just could never get to. Uh, And they also have different uh, chemical tricks up their sleeve. So they can use their chemistry in order to uh, remove nutrients from the soil that plants would never be able to remove. So they're they're a really important part of... um, part of the the soil the soil community uh, and about 80 to 90 percent of all plants that live and have ever lived form this symbiosis and the fact these threads are so tiny when they die and they turn over in the soil they are some of the most important agents of sticking these very small aggregates together and creating bigger aggregates where the carbon is more protected you see, now that is fascinating to me because, you know, there's so often that we have focuses on worms and worms are great. You know, we know that they, they eat, they poop and we love the poop. But I think this other world that's going on, this other ecosystem, and you use the word community there as well, Um you know, I, I like to think about, yeah, that there's a whole community of things going on underneath our soil. So the mycorrhizae is really important. What other sort of either microbes or um, insects that are also helping us to keep a healthy soil? Yeah, so um, so bacteria are really important. You know, there's probably more species of bacteria in a centimetre cubed of soil than there are species of plants on the planet, for example. Um, it's such a biodiverse uh, environment. And some of those bacteria are bad, but some of them are really, really good. And the, I describe the soil uh, sometimes as an information superhighway. You know, that there are deafening chemical conversations happening between these microbes in, in the soil. So plants can send out signals into the soil to say, hey, I want this type of bacterium and I will give you the particular resource that you need to survive. They can do the same to mycorrhiza and say, hey, I'm here, uh, come and colonize me. Uh, and then when the mycorrhiza and the bacteria do colonize, 
they send messages to tell the plant that they're friendly and they're not they're not pathogens. So we have this this really deafening um, conversation. If you so I I'm a microbiologist and and biological chemist. So my interests are trying to eavesdrop on the, those chemical conversations, uh, and you find some absolutely fascinating things happening uh, when you kind of peer into that world. Um, and it's only been recently that we've had the technology really to to kind of lift the lid on what we've often thought of as the black box um, in terms of who's in the soil and what are they doing. And now we do understand what who's there, uh, or we're starting to at least. Um, we're beginning to understand what they're doing. So I think the word community is really important. And of course, as with every community, you have a bad egg or two, um, which are, uh, form the pests and diseases. But if they are the minority in a really diverse community, you can find that by having a healthy soil microbiome um, and also having um, having you know mites uh, and springtails, some of them are, are not not uh, parasites. They're they're really good for the soil. Uh, having that that complex community means that they they can exclude the bad bacteria and the bad fungi. Um, because they just never get a chance to to take hold. They get outcompeted by this this really diverse community that is is well, I guess, living in harmony. Yeah, and you, you know, you have just given a whole new meaning to keeping your ear to the ground. Quite literally, <laughs> I love. You've just given me such an amazing uh, visual of your overhearing these uh, conversations that are happening underneath our feet. But I mean, I think that's great because it actually what that's just done is give me a, a, that sense and hopefully our listeners that the, the soil is living it is it is live it, there, it is a live organism it's not something that's just there holding our plant roots together and that's a that's the bit that I guess we've all got to take on board to, to kind of understand how to look after it even better. Uh, absolutely and and I think it's you know even that quote that we started with that um, we owe our entire existence to a six inch layer of topsoil and the fact that it rains it, even that um, really belies the the biodiversity of our soils and you know how cool they are um, when I when I went to do my PhD um, which is in plant the soil biology uh, my friends, well, I kind of get the plant bit. They're quite boring. But why on earth would you want to study soil? And I'm like, because it's really cool. Well, it is now. I know that it's actually the reason why I'm here. <laughs> 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 Absolutely. But I mean, I guess, you know, the the, the pet, you touched on pests and diseases. And um, I think it would be fair to say that the soil degradation that's, you know, happening not just in the UK, it's happening across the world. Um, it goes a bit beyond, obviously, the gardening uh, fence, if you like, in terms of agriculture and uh, what's going on. But bringing it back to our own backyard, the use of fertilisers and herbicides, um, you know, glyphosate, that type of thing, you know, let's talk a bit more about that now that we know that we are talking about a living organism. So yeah, it's a difficult one, and uh, some of the herbicides we now know have um, effects on the microbiology of soil, um, uh, and 
it's often a trade-off, particularly in agriculture, uh, because herbicides are used uh, to kill off a uh, a lay, so uh, a, a crop, a non-harvested crop that's planted into the soil um, to to regenerate the soil. So farmers often will have a rotation, and increasingly under regenerative agriculture, they're planting out. Um, plants that they're never going to harvest um, with clovers and ryegrasses that, that can rebuild soil structure. And in order to plant in it, one of the, the techniques that's been used is to spray it off with glyphosate uh, or something like that. Uh, and we do know that those kind of chemicals do have an impact on the microbes the, the, uh, uh, and, and maybe more of an impact than we, we recognised uh, 10 years ago. But it's all about trade-offs. And in, in, in that context, it's, well, the soil is so improved by having one of these lays that it might be worth using a herbicide to spray it off. But I I feel really strongly that should be the last resort, not the first resort. Um, and you know the same at home. Uh, I we spend a long time every year weeding our gravel driveway, and it would be very tempting to just drench it in glyphosate. But you know, unless I get something sprouting up that I know has got a a runner that I'm never going to get, then I. I, I do the hand weeding be, because I know that's a lot better for, for the soil underneath it. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's about trade-offs. I, I'm, I'm, I don't like extremism in any form. And so I, I think saying never do something is, is unhelpful because there are legitimate times where, where herbicides, even in the garden, uh, is, is really important to, to control troublesome uh, weedy plants. Uh, but as I say, it, it shouldn't be the first resort. No, I think that's, I mean, I think that is fair. And I think it's really important as well, isn't it, to, I try never to dictate to somebody. You want to inform people so that they can make an informed choice um i mean i've been in that dilemma myself you know with with herbicide you know you want to get a, a a meadow down as quick as possible and you know you're pushed against time a lot of the time it's i don't want to wait a year to, to to you know for the for the weed you know clients and and gardeners you know we're, we can be kind of impatient as well as waiting for plants to grow we can want to get things cleared up and cleaned up um and and i guess that the other side of um herbicides you know the fertilizers you know encouraging those plants to grow you know some of the chemical um fertilizers duncan what kind of impact do they have on our soils particularly phosphorus uh, nitrogen fertilizer um potash to some extent uh the creating them has an enormous takes an enormous amount of energy and can cause some really significant environmental damage so if you take nitrogen um we we did a piece of work a few years ago um that was quite widely covered in the media when it came out in the journal nature plants uh looking at the amount of co2 that's emitted from a loaf of bread um, and we showed that in a, a, a an 800 uh, gram loaf of bread nearly 700 grams uh, of co2 are emitted and shockingly 40 percent of um of those carbon emissions came solely from making the nitrogen fertilizer Uh, So we now know that um, making nitrogen fertilizer uses a chemical process called the Harbour-Bosch process, uh, which makes ammonia. 
and the Harbour Bosch process consumes two to three percent of the global energy budget. So of all of the energy that is generated on the planet in a year, um, up to even five percent of it is being used to drive a single chemical reaction, um, which is to make ammonia for fertilizer. And the situation is worse for phosphorus in a way that um, phosphorus is a, a, a finite resource. Um, most of it sits under Morocco with bits in Australia and there are bits in North America. Um, so politically, it's very vulnerable. Uh, and at the rate we're using it, we think that peak phosphorus, so the, the maximum amount of phosphorus that we can take out of the, the land in, uh, in any year will occur this century. And essentially, when it's gone, it's gone because it's just diluted away into our rivers and then into the sea. And without phosphorus, we have no agriculture uh, and there is no, there's no replacement for it. So I think minimising our use of phosphorus um, and, and nitrogen, and I think using composts, uh, using uh, organic um, fertilisers. I'm, I'm no evangelical fan of the organic movement, um, but I think it's really important that we use waste as much as we can. And a few years ago, I was on a BBC um, documentary on science in action uh, saying that we need to think about using human waste much more efficiently uh, and you know, as unpalatable as that might feel recovering nutrients from our excrement and generating what we call a circular economy putting it back on the land is I think really important and that was the <laughs> That was the topic of a lecture that I gave to, to children, um, so 11-year-old children. I had a 1,000 of them come to the University of Sheffield, uh, and it was called Everyone's a Fertiliser Factory. So it was based on that <laughs> idea. I'm sure that they were quite entertained, as we know that children are, about about the, that cycle. Um, but, yeah, touching on, you know, organic um, uh, gardening, you know, and, and being more gentle um, with the soil. And I like the fact of how, you know, you've given me that sort of sense of what do you need to do? Stop and think. I, I, I'm getting that sense as to, as opposed to just kind of what I call the spray and pray, you know. Yeah, I, I use that phrase all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good phrase because it, 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 you know, the one thing that you you want to take out takes out so much more as well, doesn't it? Absolutely, and I think you know, as a gardener myself, you know, I've got a quarter of an acre city plot, so it's quite a challenging on a on a slope. It's quite a challenging garden to garden, but you know, we get it producing food and we get it producing flowers. Um, but but here we really do stop and think about what what we need to do. We we make sure we have that big compost heap. We make sure that we manage that compost heap and we use it rather than applying fertilizer you know this this garden was covered in builder's rubble when I bought the house and I haven't put a single drop of fertilizer on it um we've we've used um uh manures and and compost that we've we've created ourselves to to fertilize the garden so um it's perfectly possible and it's that that basically the, the key behind that to me is is patience yeah 
and, and, and sort of working with it as well. So, I mean, talking of compost, and, I, and I'll just, you know, as a scientist, I'd really love to hear your view on this. It's the, the four-letter word, peat. Oh, oh, there's a shudder there. There's a shudder there. <laughs> but I've got to bring it up because as part of soil management, you know, as gardeners, we know that we have a lot of peat in our in our products. And um, I would really love to hear your take on peat. So for me, um, I worry about peat because peat is one of the biggest um, carbon stores on the planet. Um, and when we use peat up, uh, when we destroy the bogs that um, are are producing peat, we are depriving the planet of one of its life support systems. Um, so, you know, people think, oh, well, we could just take a bit of peat from the edge of this bog. As soon as you change the, the hydrology, how the water flows through that bog, um, the bog will die, you know, bogs don't survive just having a bit trimmed off them because everything changes, how the water flows in them changes. The reason that they're there changes. Uh, and once they're gone, we are losing one of the, the most important forces that has helped buffer the climate against the amount of CO2 that we've pumped into it. So my, my plea... <laughs> is avoid peat at all costs. Um, um, at the university, we we no longer use or import peat um, products, uh, which has made it life a bit more difficult for our research. But, you know, we've adapted, um, we've adapted to that because it's such an important issue. Um, and, and I, if I see peat, then I, I won't, I won't buy a product. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that, you know, we've we've brought up on uh, on Gardens World programme before. We understand about it. And I think it's just really important to hear the science behind it, because obviously there's this thing where I think people don't understand what peatlands are about. So it's great to hear you explain it. Um, and obviously do want to just think about a plant that's going to grow. Because I often think, well, a lot of the plants we're growing, you would not find in a peatland. No, exactly. <laughs> And you, know. you end up having to mess with the pH once you put peat into a soil anyway. And you think it's just not worth it. You know, I in, in Sheffield where I live, um, we have a really great municipal green waste source where we can buy composted green waste uh, and, and we can use that on our gardens. And if that's what we do, if I need to supplement my own compost heap, then, then that's what I do. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the things, isn't it, about being able to get this system, this system going as well within our gardens. And you know, and you know, what um, you know, in terms of uh, urban horticulture, because I know a lot of your work is um, focused at agriculture and and the wider um, domain. But you know, within the garden, what role can urban horticulture play in helping? the wider environment crisis that we're in at the moment? I, I think it's critical. So um, we've lost about a third of all of our agricultural soils over the last 40 years to pollution and degradation. And sadly, I think um, unless we, we think seriously about where we grow our plants uh, and why we grow them there, then we're going to 
we're going to generate a lot of problems when it comes to feeding a population that could hit 10 billion uh, in in the not too distant future. So I think for me, it's really important that if we we use um, traditional agricultural methods, big field agriculture, which let's be honest, is the most efficient way of producing cereals uh, and things like potatoes and carrots, etc. We need to then give that time, that land time to rest and to recover. And we know that in as little as three to five years, you can, you can recover most of the, what we call the ecosystem services, the, the properties, the positive properties of the soil, um, with a grass clover lay. So, um, giving the land time to rest means we have to grow somewhere else. And I think the urban environment is where we need to grow. So my my colleague, uh, Jill Edmondson, and I published a paper uh, a while ago in the journal Nature Food, where we basically looked at the amount of land available to grow in Sheffield. Uh, and if we used all of it, there was enough to grow the entire city's five a day uh, in terms of vegetables. And that meant ploughing every park and every garden. So it's obviously not practical, but it shows you the capacity that the urban environment has to produce food. And we currently have a a big project where we're working with lots of farmers, uh, urban uh, and peri-urban and rural. Um, It's part of the UK's Transforming the UK Food System project. program uh, where we're looking at how we can integrate urban horticulture uh, with existing businesses so using high-tech hydroponics uh, on the dairy farm or um, in uh, uh, an urban urban garden for example Uh, and I think a lot of people used to think this was just kind of messing around the edges whereas I I think this kind of um, uh, acceptance that urban horticulture has a really big part to play in our food system um i think that's that's really coming to the fore uh and and i think if we can achieve that then we we have the opportunity to not destroy our soils in the countryside um uh, and to, to import some of that food production into cities which let's be honest is where we eat the food so yeah yeah, and it's it's not going to have all the air miles uh, attached to it. Go out there and, and, and pick your own, which is which is great. And you know, it's 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 really really good to hear you're so behind um, uh, urban horticulture because I think that at times, you know, we could be sitting at home thinking, does our garden really make a difference? Does it really sort of add any value? You know, I, I like my roses, and and to hear you say yes, it does, um, is really powerful. Now, um, the other thing, Duncan, I mean, I, I've sort of looking at your team and what they do. I've looked on your website, and you know, you're really passionate about science communication. I can tell it um, talking with you today. Um, but I, just tell, just I'd like to talk a bit more about how you express some of that because it's not conventional, is it? How you communicate some of these things? Well, I think uh, science can be scary, um, particularly you know hearing a professor like me stood in a lecture theatre telling everybody how the world's about to end it's it, it's not very endearing and and it can be scary it can be intimidating and it can be inaccessible so 
um, I work with a, a very close friend of mine who's um, quite a famous artist called Anthony Bennett. Uh, and, and we started working together thinking, well, how can we democratise access to information about about food and soil. Uh, so we started creating artworks together. And I think a lot of sci art happens where a scientist comes along and the artist just creates a literal interpretation of what the scientist's work is about. But we did something a bit different. We, we've done performance art. Um, we have had sculptures. We've had living sculptures. Um, uh, we've We've worked with refugees to grow food in mattresses, um, and uh, seriously, uh, and you know, thousands of refugees in in Jordan now are growing food in their own little gardens using discarded mattresses, um, uh, and we brought that into our artwork as well. So I think you know, I've even been on the stage doing performance art as a performance artist, which I you know. 10 years ago, well, 20 years ago when I was doing my PhD, I, I would not have believed you that I would be stood on a stage in front of hundreds of people uh, in a giant pink cape um, doing performance <laughs> art. But, but I, I, I did. Uh, <laughs> and, and the feedback's amazing because I think when people come to our shows, we did a big show called The Sound of Science, which is an electro-pop album for children uh, and adults with a big stage show. We did that at the Cheltenham Science Festival uh, and, uh, um, uh, and at the Festival of the Mind in Sheffield. Uh, and that was just brilliant. You know, all these kids completely wowed, but the story was one of, um, of food security, of planetary health and of how they need to use their voices to help fix the problem. Um, so it's called The Sound of Science, uh, and it was absolutely brilliant. Um, so, yeah, there's a kind of flavour of the things that we do. But I think more people like me just need to get out of our offices, get out there into communities and work with people uh, and, and, you know, learn together about things like the soil because, you know, I've learned so much from talking to gardeners and talking to farmers who, who have this really innate and close relationship with the soil that can teach me plenty uh, about how soils work. Um, so it's a real two-way dialogue when, when you do that. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely spot on in terms of having a conversation about these topics and, and learning all from each other. Like you say, you know, gardeners, I know, have got a, a huge amount of experience um, in, in the spaces that they work on. Their little plot is is uh, quite a sanctuary. And, and I just wonder, you know, I've, we've covered so much, you know, everything from the, uh, the I'll get this right, the Wood Wide Web and, uh, and the inter, what was it, the interhighway we talked about? <laughs> Oh, information superhighway, yeah. <laughs> information superhighway with all that that mycorrhizae and and obviously the importance of um, keeping carbon in in the soil or you know all of these things we've spoken about. What I'd like to ask you is, what one change should we all be making to improve our soil health? I think I think it's the thing that we talked about earlier, um, and I think it's have a think about something before you do it. Don't don't jump in. Uh, do you need to dig over that bed? Do you need to put down that fertilizer? Do you need to use that herbicide? And in many cases, the answer will be yes. But I bet you, if you really think about it, most of the time you don't need to do it. 
Yeah. Well, one thing I, I, I will certainly be taking away is remember that I can put my ears to the ground and listen to that community of live action that's going on in the soil. So, Duncan, thank you so much. It's been fascinating talking with you. Thank you. That's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to me, Ara Anderson, on the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. You can find out more about the themes we've covered today at gardenersworld.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it. Rate us in your podcast provider app. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify or Acast to never miss an episode. See you next time.